I often ask myself, what do we as Christians have that is so good that it's a shame that the world has to live without it? The answer, I believe, is the good news about Jesus, and that is worth sharing. This is Adam Hill, Minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I pray that today's message shares that good news and that you are richly blessed by it. Good morning, church. Happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. Amen. I am so glad to be back with you. I have uh, spent the last 10 days in Uganda, Africa, and been exceptionally blessed. I will have a lot more to say about that uh, next week. I am processing uh, right now and, and, and got back yesterday and so I didn't, I don't think I've had time to tell you everything that God has sort of shown me and taught me and so I'm asking for about a week uh, to think through some of these things. Um, but I can tell you, church, I am I'm so thankful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I love you. I don't have it in the notes, and so I apologize uh, to uh, the folks running the audio. But it's our tradition here that as we begin the lesson, we stand in honor and reverence of, the, of God and the authority uh, that God has in his word. And so if you will stand, if you're able, stand while I read from God's word. From the book of Revelation, chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Our Heavenly Father, Creator and Recreator, we are in awe of your glory, of your power, of your majesty and reign, of your love and your grace, of your presence and your faithfulness. God, you are good. 
and you are with us and you are for us and you are our strength and our hope and our life. Speak, Father, for your children are listening today. We celebrate because we know we are yours forever and ever for all generations because of your Son who is risen. Indeed, God, we thank you and we love you and we praise you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I can tell you what hasn't changed about air travel. Still a lot of waiting. There's a whole lot of hurry up and wait. They will announce, we're about to board the plane, you better get here. And you go over there and you get ready. And they've got, they've got sections where you're supposed to stand with other people who are in your section. And, and the thing that I've found out is if you fly with the legend, Larry Norman, <laughs> you fly getting upgrades. And so they gave us our own place to stand where the commoners <laughs> couldn't stand near where we were standing. And, 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 and we, we were there and, and we were waiting. And what's funny is they get you in such a hurry. Make sure you've got everything out. We need your passport. We need your ticket. We need your, your carry-on. We need you holding three different things in all four hands. And, and, and we, just, we, just, we need you to be as loaded down and as, as, as unable to move as possible right now so that we can wait 30 minutes before we actually open the gate door and you get to go in and then sit on the plane while we wait another 30 minutes, right? Waiting is the hardest part. Life is like that. Waiting is the hardest part. John 19 closes with the body of Jesus placed in a nearby tomb, the apostles scattered and in hiding, and the only remaining disciples scrambling in tears to get home, to get home as, as Sabbath begins. And it's almost silly. This whole worry about getting home before Sabbath begins. I mean... What does it really even matter anymore? The Messiah is dead. What does Sabbath even mean after that? The anointed one, the liberator, the savior has died. And we're supposed to rush home and light candles. And here's the kicker. Rest. And wait. Why are we resting? The Son of God has been executed. 
because of some lies told by the high priest and the other leading religious leaders. And now we rush home to follow the Sabbath rules of God. Knowing that we just murdered his son. And, and, and even more, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. Jesus worked on the Sabbath. And now that he's dead, we're supposed to not do anything on the Sabbath? What's happening? We just, we just come here and we wait. It may be that the Saturday following Jesus' crucifixion was the longest day in history. Because on that day we had to wait. God didn't act. God didn't step in. Are you awake? Are you up there? Didn't you see what happened, what they did to your son? They killed him. Aren't you going to do anything about it? Truth be told, waiting on God can be murder on a soul. Amen? And truth be told, it seems that Mary has had enough waiting. And as it was still dark on Sunday morning, she set out for the tomb. No more waiting. In John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and, and, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. She makes an assumption that because Jesus isn't in the tomb, Jesus must have been taken. The silent space between chapter 19's ending and chapter 20's beginning astounds me. I don't, I don't know about your Bible, but, but, but in my Bible, I found where the big 20 was, and, and it's extra giant print, so my, my, that 20 is pretty big. Do y'all see the 20 in your Bible? At chapter 20, if you have a Bible, you can open it and look at it. Chapter 20. There's a, there's, a, there, there's a big chapter 20 that means you're about to start a new chapter, namely chapter 20. We're tricky like that. And then right above it, sometimes there's a heading that tells you what this next part's about, right? And then right above that... I don't know what your Bible has. Some Bibles might be different. My Bible has... A space. Just an empty line. And then right above that is the end of chapter 19. Where Jesus was put in a tomb. And it was sealed. And then there's that space. 
that silent one-line space. At the end of chapter 19, the tomb was very full. And by the first verse of chapter 20, it's completely empty. Frederick Beekner says, It's always struck me as remarkable that when the writers of the four Gospels come to the most important part of the story that they have to tell, they tell it in whispers. The part I mean, of course, is the part about the resurrection. The Jesus who was dead is not dead anymore. He is risen. He's here. And according to the Gospels, there was no choir of angels to proclaim it. There was no sudden explosion of light in the sky. Not even a single soul was around to see it happen. So Mary comes to the tomb, finds the stone rolled away and the body of Jesus missing. And she panics and jumps to the conclusion that the body's been taken which is a natural assumption. And it reminds us that the resurrection itself is supernatural. And it might not be easy to see, let alone believe. Perhaps John is, is, is telling us that faith in resurrection is impossible unless you're shown the way by the resurrected one. Which actually seems to be the theme of this chapter. John and Peter come to see the tomb. Peter and the other disciple started off for the tomb. Both were running, but humble brag, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John had speed. Can't teach speed. He reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but didn't go in. Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. You can't teach boldness either. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed Look at what follows it in verse 9. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Verse 11. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? She said, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. 
Mary stands crying. They ask her why she's crying. She explains the dilemma about having somehow lost Jesus somewhere. And as I've meditated on this, it struck me that she is certainly not the last disciple who ever lost Jesus somewhere in his tomb. Things get very interesting in verse 14. And I, I want you to be clear, if you, were, if you were attached to the angels that were talking to her, don't get too attached because they're not mentioned again. They're not, they're not the point. Something else bigger is about to happen. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Oh, are you ready for awkward? But did not realize that it was Jesus. Ooh, so close. Jesus then asks her, he asks her, verse 15, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. Have you ever thought about how much of a bummer it must be to come back from the dead only to be confused for the gardener? <laughs> like that, that, is, that is a tough one to wear if you're Mary. That is embarrassing. But maybe, I wonder, if something else is going on here in this text. Because John is so skillfully written, and he's written so that you may believe. John is so well written, it's so skillfully written. John does things on purpose. For instance, John loves the number seven. We've, we've studied through the Gospel of John, and as we've made this journey, we've seen the seven statements where Jesus says, I am, over and over, to let them know that he is God with them. There are also, I don't know if you knew this, seven signs in John's Gospel. That, that, that in some ways corroborate what is happening in the seven I am statements. John, John lists these seven signs that in John 2, it says the first sign is Jesus turning water to wine. You may recognize these signs because we included them in this teaching series. John 4, healing the official's son was the second sign. John 5, healing the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 as well as the walking on water. John 9, healing the man that was born blind. And John 11, the seventh sign, the resurrection of Lazarus. Each sign escalating in scope and significance. They culminate in the conquering of death, the resurrection from the grave. And I think that as people read this gospel with its sevens, Everywhere they would have taken note 
that something significant is happening. It would have caught their attention. Now, we recognize that seven is a good biblical number that seems to show up a lot in this book. The first century audience familiar with the Jewish theology that's behind this would have realized the significance of the number seven. It's closely linked with creation because there are seven days in Genesis 1 as well. God made the world in seven days. And the seven signs, in them we see that the old creation had a problem. Privation. Sick children. Lifetimes of pain. Starvation. Storms. Blindness. And to sum it all up at its root, there is a death problem in the old creation. But when we come to the resurrection of Jesus in John chapter 20, we have a new sign. A new sign for a new day. An eighth day. And if the seven days before referred to the first week of creation, then the eighth day refers to the first day of a new creation. The old creation has a death problem. The new creation doesn't. And here we meet Mary Magdalene thinking that Jesus is the gardener. And I think that maybe that should come when John wrote it. I think he winked. The gardener. After all, God likes being a gardener. God likes gardens with his new creations. The first garden was amazing. Adam and Eve lived and worked in the garden, caring for it. And God was there with them. And they took walks together. Can you imagine that? Just strolling with God. Past the tree of life. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. It's great. Eat all you want. Past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I like that. Don't even think about that one. And then with just one temptation, one audacious lie, that somehow in the middle of perfection, Satan promised them that if they broke the only rule God had given them, they would somehow have more. So they ate, and their eyes were opened, and technically they got more. Shame, guilt, fear. Sin entered, and the old creation broke under the weight of its death problem. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. He says, the creation waits 
in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Creation itself is hoping that it can be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in pain. That when sin enters the picture, sin has one power, and that power is death. And, and, and so, so connected is sin and death that Paul refers to it as a law of sin and death. He says the wages of sin is death. That wherever you do sin, you end up with death. This is how it works in this world. From creation's fall onward. Creation groans in agony because of its bondage to decay. But verse 22 is so subtle in Romans 8. It's been groaning in the pains of childbirth. It feels like you're dying. You're not dying, you're giving birth. Because God is the God of life, not the God of death. And the old creation is in pain and is passing away, but a new life is emerging that is glorious and no longer has the death problem of sin because our Christ has died and is raised. When John talks about what it will be like when Christ returns, look at how he describes it. We read Revelation chapter 21, new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away. And, and, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven. A bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice saying, look, God's dwelling place is with humanity. They'll live with him and he'll be their God. Communion restored. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more depression or anxiety, no more cancer, no more leukemia, no more sickness, no more COVID, no more dying. For the old order of things has passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Chapter 22. He's already shown us the new city, the new Jerusalem. Now he shows us the new, of all things, garden. Then the angel showed me the river of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, there stood the tree of life. Eat all you want. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month that's never out of season. 
And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Praise God. I just spent 10 days in a nation that needs healing. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And and what's amazing is I've come back to realize that I've spent my whole life in a nation that needs healing. And verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. Remember when Adam sinned, the ground was cursed. And since then, old creation had this problem of death because sin had entered it and its curse had broken it. And all of creation is groaning, waiting to give birth to a new life that doesn't have this curse. And here in Revelation 22 and verse 3, we see no longer will there be any curse, that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him, and they'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. So in verse 16 of John chapter 20, Jesus calls her name. Mary, he says. And she turned out towards him. And she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She, she, she uses her old name for him. And Jesus said, don't, don't hold on to me. She, she reached out for him, but, but he says, no, 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 no. It just won't do. Mary doesn't realize that she can't hold on to him. She can't hold on to who he was. This is new. Creation is new. Resurrection is new. Mary, you are new. Behold, I'm making all things new. Barbara Brown Taylor said this. She said, new life given by God cannot be killed. And we can remember that then there is nothing we cannot do. Move mountains. Banish fear. Love our enemies. Change the world. The only thing we cannot do is hold on to Jesus. Instead, we must let Him hold on to us. We must let Him take us where He is going. Into the white hot presence of God who is not behind us but is ahead of us in every way. God is making all things new. Kenny, I want to invite you and your team up. Because I could talk about this all day, but I'm, I'm out of time. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, I'll conclude with this. In one of the richest proclamations of the gospel. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul tells us the good news of the resurrection in such a powerful and compelling way, he says, if Christ has not been raised, in verse 17, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You see, Christ must be raised for there to be victory over sin and death. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins, and sin has one power, death, and it did what it could do to our Lord. But in the empty tomb, death is defeated once and for all. The power of sin is made empty. Oh, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? And the power of God makes life forevermore. And as Paul preaches the resurrection, he uses of all things in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 26, a gardening metaphor. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised up from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. And after he's destroyed all dominion, all authority, all powers... He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Praise God forever and ever. Amen. His church said, Amen. God is the God of life. And life? will have the last word, triumphing over death. Because after evil has done its worst and says he is dead, God speaks once more and reminds the universe he is risen. He is risen indeed. Today is a day of good news. It is a day of newness. It is a day where life triumphs. And if today you want to give your life to Christ so that you can experience the newness of life that only Christ can bring, then I want to invite you to not wait one more moment, but to give your life to Christ, to be baptized into Christ, to participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no better day than resurrection day to experience the newness of life in Christ. If you have not been baptized, I beg you to give your life to the one who can give you life. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and worship our God. And if you are ready to submit your life to Christ, then please come forward while we sing together. A quick confession here. Truth be told, as I preach, I'm often preaching at myself. 
I'm saying what I need to be reminded of. Thankfully, my struggles and questions are not just mine. It turns out that being human brings some pretty universal challenges to all of us. I am so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. It has never let me down. I pray that today's message blessed you with the good news. Remember, you are loved and chosen.